right. Well, the book of Matthew, chapter number five, as our children are dismissing. Once again, of course, our younger age children, they have a nursery in the back. And our older age kids will be up here with Miss Tori in the front. And she'll have a class there for them. And we'll be turning to Matthew, chapter number five. I will try to speak with an adequate volume this morning. I'm going to attempt to leave our fan on. I've been trying to turn that off, but it helps so much keep it cooler in here with the thing on. So I'll try to talk above that. I hope it's not too much of a distraction. But Matthew chapter number five. And we're continuing our lesson. For those of you that remember, we're continuing our lesson on kingdom living. And it has to do with the whole idea of Jesus Christ when he was, he was here on the earth. He preached what he called the kingdom. It was the gospel of the kingdom. He preached the kingdom. And that really tripped up a lot of people. They're like, oh, man, great. The, the Messiah is here. The king of Israel is here. And they were looking for a governmental, judicial type king that was going to rule and reign over them and liberate them from Rome. Now. I will say one day Jesus will sit on that throne and we're looking forward to that day. I'm going to get to see him sitting on that throne and that's going to be great. But that's not what Jesus was really preaching at that time. He was preaching that he wanted to save people from their sin. He even said that. He came to forgive people of their sin and he wanted to present that kingdom, not necessarily judicially, but he wanted to present that kingdom spiritually. And this is what we said. It would be like me as an American saying, you know what, I'm going to travel over to Australia. I'm going to travel over to Great Britain, wherever. And when I go there, I am bringing my Americanness with me. People are going to see that guy and they're going to say, oh, yeah, he's an American. He, he talks like an American. He thinks like an American. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're supposed to think like children of God's kingdom. We're supposed to act like children of God's kingdom. And as we live and walk and talk in this daily life, we should be representatives of God's kingdom. Though we've never been there, we should still present that to those around us. And Jesus preached and taught how we are to do that. And we've been going through the Beatitudes as his first lesson. This is a lesson that Jesus himself preached. And we've been going through these one at a time, talking about these things that Jesus said that are totally contradictory to the way that everyone else thinks. You know, when we talked about how a person should be uh, mournful, but we mourn over sin. We talked about how we should be poor in spirit, which just means it's good to be humble. Uh, we talked about what it means to be merciful. We talked about being pure. Today we're going to come to verse number nine. And Jesus gives us another word that is very much an attribute of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter five, verse number nine. The Bible says this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, I want to go ahead and get this out of the way right out of the beginning. Because with this out of the way, it'll help me get through what, what the Bible is teaching. Typically, when we think peace, we think war and peace. We think you have, you have conflict, and then you have the absence of conflict, okay? That's not the kind of peace that this is talking about. If you think that way, 
you will come out thinking that, oh, Jesus says you're supposed to be a pacifist and it's not okay to ever go to war. It's not okay to ever fight. Wrong. Well, how do you know that, preacher? Because look at all the things that, the, that Jesus, or God rather, sanctioned in the Bible that are war. I mean, you go to the Old Testament, God sent his people to war numerous times. When Jesus comes back to this earth, he's coming with a sword. And he is going to fight and defeat evil and wickedness. Jesus is not a pacifist, okay? Now, when I say pacifist, I mean strictly in the terms of it's wrong to ever you know, have conflict. I mean, goodness, man, when Jesus was here on the earth, he went into the temple and saw those money changers. The Bible says he went, he didn't go grab a whip. It says he went and took the time to make one. And then he went and flipped over their table and drove those guys out of the temple. That was an act of violence, okay? So when I say peace, let's go ahead and qualify this. Peace is not the absence of conflict, okay? Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is peace of heart and mind, sometimes during the conflict. Okay? Now, the absence of conflict is peace of heart and mind, sometimes during the conflict, but certainly within our heart and within our mind. We could even say the tranquility of heart and mind. And I'm going to prove that to you. With that in mind, let's talk about how we can have the peace of God and then how we can be peacemakers and cause others to be at peace as well. That's what we want, okay? We want to learn to be peacemakers and show people how they can have the peace of God. Let's first talk about how we can have it. Let's go to Philippians chapter number 4, verse number 6. Philippians chapter number 4, verse number 6. A lot of people call Philippians the book of joy, and it is. <laughs> if memory serves, this was written from a prison cell, the book of joy. Philippians chapter number 4, verse number 6. I'm going to start verse number 5, but I'm going to read 5, 6, and 7. The Apostle Paul here is talking about your conduct towards others and how you can have a tranquil demeanor. People can look at you and say, man, that guy, he's just got... He's got a peaceful way about him. He's just, he's just never bothered by anything. He's always level-headed. You never see this guy lose it. How is he so peaceful? Philippians 4, verse 5. Let's read it. Let your moderation, I'll qualify that word in a minute, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, this is what we're talking about. The peace of God. I think with all of these things, we need to say the word of God after it. Because, hey, how am I supposed to love my enemies? You show them the love of God. How am I supposed to be merciful to those people that are doing awful things? You show them the mercy of God. How in the world am I supposed to have peace in the midst of all this? You need the peace of God. See, th those are different than, than the normal types of things that we talk about. So how does the peace of God keep me? 
Here's how this, this passage works. If you do verses number 5 and 6, then you will receive the peace of God, verse number 7. Okay? Let's look at verse 5 and 6, and then we'll see how verse number 7 comes into play in your life. So verse number 5. The Bible says this, first of all. This is how God grants peace. If you're keeping notes, this is Roman number 1. God grants peace. How does he do it? Verse 5, the first thing you've got to do is this. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Moderation simply saying this. It starts with a choice of our conduct. We need to choose things that we should and should not stress about. And really, when I think it comes down to it, there's really not much we really should be stressed about. Let, let me give you an example. This is something I love. A, a, lot, of, a lot of you folks know I have to work at nighttime sometimes. Um, <laughs> quite a bit, actually. Here recently, when, when it's this time of year and things, well, not today, but when things start getting really, really clear out, I love being outside in the dead of night and being able to look up and just see so many stars you can't even count them. I mean, the stars that normally you don't even see unless it's super dark out. And then I think to myself, man, in the grand scheme of things, I'm a little peon. Like, I am nothing. And, and I think about how God just spoke, and all of these things came to be. He is that great, and He's that powerful, and I am so small, and I stress about this little small aspect of my life that I'm going to forget about a month from now. Right? See, that is a choice that I make. There are some things that I stress about, and the only reason I'm stressing about them is because I keep bringing them back up on my own. Why do I keep talking about it? Why do I keep chewing on it? Why do I keep mulling on it? And then, then I realize I'm showing that to everyone else around me. Have you ever met someone that it's almost like they're just never having a good day? <laughs> I, I hope I'm not that person. But have you ever met someone, no matter when you talk to them, man, how are you doing today? I could be better, you know. Oh, man, it's sunny out today. Yeah, well, it's not sunny enough. Yeah, well, whatever. They'll find something to be upset about. The Bible says we need to be the opposite of that. Look at the first verse again. Let your moderation, that's talking about, that's talking about the attitude of your general demeanor. You are a moderate person. Everything that comes in and everything that goes, you have a gentle understanding of that, and you are simply moderate. And that moderation is known to all men around you. It should be your reputation. The man, that guy, he just has a general understanding of life. I remember there was a girl, this was, this was a gal, I haven't talked to her in years. This is probably 12 years ago. She was, I want to say, uh, um, she was a nurse in like intensive care, like intensive care nurse or something. And, and I remember I was having a conversation with her. And she was talking about how doing that job puts things in perspective. She's like, you know, I started this job and it's almost like every other day I see people's lives that are put on hold and sometimes even stop. And I see people that are in some kind of a car accident and they lose their lives. And then I think to myself, why am I stressing out over this little problem I've got at my house? You know, th this thing that really in the grand scheme of it all doesn't even matter. And she talked about how it gave her a sense of perspective. 
And then when I think of that term moderation, I think she's got it. She, she understands perspective, things that we let bother us that shouldn't. That's what Paul is even saying here. Our moderation should be known unto all men. And then he even qualifies it at the end. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. So, when your perspective of your entire life is this, the Lord's at hand. The Lord's at hand. Hey, God's got this. I don't know how he's going to work it out, but God's got it. And if I can live and think with that mentality, that moderation is going to come, and it's going to be shown before all men. So first, I need to have that gentleness. It's also in the sense of this. I would, I would give you a real quick other idea. Don't be someone that walks around with a chip on your shoulder either. Have you ever also met those people? Man, they're just looking for an opportunity to fly off the handle and get angry about something. However, you've also got other people where you could just walk up to them out of the blue, punch them in the face, and then they're like, well, that's what you had to do. (laughs) You know, sometimes those people are really annoying too because they just never get upset about anything. But I think that's where the Lord wants us to be, someone that is generally has a moderate spirit because they know God's got this. So we need to also stop worrying. Let's look at verse number six. Worry. Man, worry, worry, worry. Be careful. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a second. Careful in this sense means being full of care. It doesn't mean like when when me and my son were down at the river the other day and we were trying to cross over the river and the river was starting to get kind of fast and talking about like making sure you're you're, you're sure footed hey be careful don't fall that's not the idea how about full of care where why are we so full of care over these things a little bit different be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto god so what am i supposed to do Ladies and gentlemen, you've got two choices. When, when you're on your path of life and roadblock shows up, oh man, here's a massive roadblock, what am I going to do? you got one of two things. You can load down your heart and mind with care. Oh, how am I going to get over this? How am I going to get around it? Man, I can't, it certainly can't go through the thing. What am I going to do? And you stress and worry and worry and worry. Or you can do what the verse says by prayer. Lord, I know you take care of me. I thank you for bringing me this far. I know you're in control. And I am going to request that you remove this for me. And after you make that request, all right, Lord, now it's in your hands. You you see how that works? Because he says, be careful for nothing. The only way that care goes away is if everything is by prayer and supplication. He says, let your request be made known unto God. Man, you've already asked God about it. Put it in his hands and stop worrying. It would be like this. I find myself turning into that pastor that always talks about his kids because his kids are the most perfect examples ever. (laughs) But it's true. It's like this. It would be like me going on a road trip and my son in the back seat. Dad, do you know where we're going? (laughs) Yes, son. (laughs) Are we there yet? No, son. Dad, are we going to run out of gas? No, son. Yeah. 
It's not my son's place to worry about those things, is it? Why? Because dad's got it. Dad's going to get him where he needs to go. But oh, how much we are like children in the vehicle of God. God has got us on a path, and he's leading us somewhere. And if something comes up, the Bible says it's not my place to worry about it. And if it is something that I have to deal with, I'm supposed to go to the Lord. Lord, I need you to fix this for me. I'm trusting in you. I'm going to do my best to work on it, and I'm going to do whatever I can, but I'm not going to worry about it because I know you're in control. You see how that works? Now, I'm not full of care anymore. That's when verse number 7 comes into play. When we do that, it's like the verse continues. Or the, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Man, now Jesus is able to calm your heart. He's able to say, listen, don't worry about it. It's under control. <sighs> okay, Lord, I know you've got it. And there's a reason that Paul said it passes all understanding. Because it's not something that someone without the Lord is going to understand. Because all around you, you can have people in the exact same situation, and they would be losing their minds, pulling their hair out with worry. What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? Then all of a sudden, you've got some guy over here that's just stoic and composed. And no one else is going to understand it. I mean, how are you able to keep such composure under that? The Lord gives me peace. I don't understand it, but he's got it. And the thing is, that might even come to the point where you are even okay with the fact that this might cost you your life. That's okay. As a matter of fact, that'd be all right with me anyway, because I can leave here and go on to be with the Lord. <laughs> that sounds pretty good sometimes. You know, well, what are they going to do? Promote you to heaven? That's how I call death. At, at best, they're going to send you on to heaven. So that's why I think the Apostle Paul, even being chained up and being beaten, he can say, you know what? I can be careful for nothing. God's got this. So ladies and gentlemen, the peace of God, that is something that he will grant you. And I think that comes from me understanding God's authority over my life. Um, illustration I used to use a long time, long time ago. I haven't used this one in a while. I've got this car that's out in my, uh, in my garage. My, my boys are too big for it now. I've had this thing probably, oh goodness, I guess seven years. Anyway, you know how kids play with like remote control cars, right? You know, they, they can drive the little car around. Imagine that, but big enough for you to put your child in. <laughs> this was my toy. So we, we could put our kids inside this little car, and then I could drive him around. <laughs> I used to, like, crash him into walls and stuff, too. It was fun. He didn't get hurt. You know, it was just it was really slow. But So you could either do that, or you could flip a switch and give him control, and he could drive around. But I used to drive my son around inside this little car inside the house, and, you know, and he thought it was great, and I thought it was great. Funny illustration about this. So long as my son was in the car, I could drive him wherever I wanted him to go. As soon as he got out of the car, he was now on his own. And folks, the more often I think about that, the more I see that's where we stand with the Lord. 
if I want to be led of the Lord and be in his perfect place, I have to let him be the one that's guiding me. I have to say yes to where he goes. I have to willingly, as it were, stay in the car. But if I so choose, nope, I've got this life. This is me. I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to solve this problem on my own. All right. But what you're doing is inviting your stress. You are inviting worry. And you are borrowing troubles that you don't have to worry about. So what we ought to do instead is cast those things on the Lord and realize that he can have prevalence and take care of all those things. So this is how we can have peace. I'm also going to say this. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a child of God, you should also love peace. You should want peace. You know, what we should, and I think deep down we all do, but I think we'll also, when we talk about being a peacemaker, we should want to see that peace in other people's lives as well. How can I show others that peace? I want them to see it in me so they can likewise have it. I need to be a demonstrator of that peace. So let's switch gears here just a little bit, and we're going to talk about how we can do that. Let's go to Romans chapter number 14. Romans chapter number 14. You know, I think it would do us well to maybe go outside and look up at the stars a little more often and just kind of help us to remember. <laughs> Those stars was a half a sentence in the book of Genesis. If you go back and read that, it talks about God spoke and made all these things. At the end of the sentence, God goes, and he made the stars also. And <laughs> look up and say, wow. You know, all of that, half a sentence. It's pretty cool. Romans chapter number 14. Let's read verses 15 through 19. Romans 14, verses 15 through 19. This is going to be a major shift in gears, but I want you to bear with me because now we're talking about how we can show peace to others. So Romans chapter 14, 15 to 19. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, yeah, we're talking about food, now walkest thou not charitably, Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God, remember we're talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace. See that? Peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after things which make for peace. Oh, peacemaker. Let us follow after things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. All right. Now we're going to talk about peace between, again, this is not judicial peace. This is not wartime peace. This is talking about you bringing peace into a fellow Christian's life. And maybe, maybe sometimes we even take peace away from others. Let me give you the narrative and why it talks about meat. You've heard me use this illustration before because it goes across so many things. I'm going to use steak because I like steak. <laughs> and we're in cattle country, so we can talk about steak, right? There was this thing that was happening at this time 
where culturally they had these false gods they would worship, and a lot of these places still do. What they would do is they would go to these temples of these false gods, and just like they would do for the Lord, the way the Bible says, they would take animals and they would sacrifice cattle, and they would sacrifice livestock to false gods. All right? Now, the sacrifice has been made, and now they have all this meat laying there. Like, all right, well, now what do we do with it? Oh, I know. We're going to take this to market, and we're going to sell it. And so they did. They would, go, they would finish up their pagan ritualistic ceremonies, then they would take this meat, and they would go to market, and they would sell it. Now, the question of the day was, is it right or wrong for me to buy and eat this meat? That's what these Christians were trying to figure out. Hey, man, this, is, this has been used in, in pagan worship of false gods. Is it right or wrong for me to, to, to buy this meat and to uh, support their practice or for me to eat this? Well, what, what should I do? And Paul is weighing in on the subject. This is under the, the admonition of the Lord, of course. The Lord guided this. Ultimately, Paul's instruction was this. Steak is steak. Meat is meat. What, what you take in, and this is what Jesus said, what you take in is not what is going to defile you. What the man takes in is not what defiles him. It's what comes out of the man is what defiles him. So Paul is saying, if you eat this, fine. You have liberty to do so. There's no problem with you just eating meat. But, this was his big but. But, if, however, you cause your fellow brother to fall into sin, and you cause him to stumble or maybe be wooed into those pagan practices because of you eating your steak, now you've messed up. You need to live in such a way that you are protecting the peace of others around you. We need not to live in a way that we're causing conflict in our brothers and sisters' lives. So now notice this conflict. I'm not talking about war. I'm talking about spiritual conflicts here. So that would be like me saying this. Um, I'm going to be super, super superficial. Let's say for whatever reason, everybody thought that, that Dodge, the company, was some kind of a pagan, wicked company, you know, whatever. And, and me, however, by, by somehow driving one of their vehicles, it, everyone looked at me as a supporter of their stuff. All right, is it wrong to drive a vehicle? No, I'm just driving a car. But what am I doing? I am now hurting my influence as a pastor to be able to minister to people. And if I knew that me driving a particular name brand of vehicle was going to hurt my ministry, I'd sell that in a heartbeat. Because that's useless. That is pointless. And that is nothing to be compared to the importance of being able to minister and to care for those around me. Does that make sense? So what am I doing? I am living peaceably with all men. I am looking for ways to cause peace. I'm making peace. Oh, well, well Pastor, aren't you at liberty to do what you want? Well, yeah. But is it really worth me causing that trouble? Okay, with that in mind, let's look at the Scripture again, and we're going to go through it, and I think you'll be able to see it more clearly this time. Think about the stake. So verse number 14. I'm sorry, verse number 15. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, see, your brother's having a hard time with it, 
if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. See, you're causing problems. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good, see that which is okay, be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. That's not what the kingdom's about. But it is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore now follow after things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. That essentially is me saying, okay, if there's some kind of conflict that rises out of this, what do I care about more? Do I care more about being right or do I care more about living peaceably? Hey, let's, let's, let's take this one at home because, I mean, we're, we're humans. Let's just go ahead and talk about it. Husband and wives get into an argument. How many times is it honestly a matter of right and wrong? Really, when you get down to it, almost never. I mean, it's usually a matter of personal opinion. I heard, and you've heard me tell you this, I heard a story once about a couple that got into an argument over how to make a grilled cheese sandwich. Serious. One couple said, or one, one of them said, you're supposed to take butter and put it in the pan first. And then the other spouse was like, no, 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 you don't put the butter in the pan. You put the butter on the bread, then put the bread in the pan. And th that turned into just like this massive argument. I'm like, really? Really? Are, are you honestly going to get into an argument over this? There is no right or wrong. Point being, we get into so many arguments over things that are not even a right or wrong issue. What's the argument about? It's about me being right. I mean, let's, let's face it, that's what it's about. It's about me being right. I want my way. So what are we doing? Causing conflict over something that doesn't matter. What Jesus is saying is, I need not to cause problems over the meat. The kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink. That's not the things that matter. What matter is purity. What matters is peace. And I need to look at myself and ask myself, what can I do in this situation to cause peace and to show the peace of God? Ladies and gentlemen, bringing the peace of God and making peace in someone's life, sometimes that means me sacrificing. Maybe I sacrifice what I want. Maybe I sacrifice what I like. But I'm being in the, bringing the peace of God into someone's life. Can I tell you that Jesus Christ did that for us? I, I want to draw your attention to something. And this still to this day, I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. But, but it's in the scriptures, so I believe it. Ladies and gentlemen, do you remember when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying. Do you remember the prayer that he prayed that's recorded in the scripture? He says, Lord... If there's any way for this cup to pass from me, please show it to me. He, he was showing his, I don't want to say fear, because fear is not of God. But he was showing his humanness in where his heart was about the fact that he was getting ready to go and to be tortured and to be put to death. It's like, Lord, if this can pass from me, then let it. Let it. Then he finished with this. And this is what blows my mind. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is equal with God, 
He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. How Jesus and God can have two different wills is already amazes me. I don't understand it. That's one of those things I'm looking forward to getting to heaven so I can figure it out. But he says, not my will, but thine. What was happening is Jesus was saying, all right, Lord, we're going to do this your way. This is what you prescribed. I'll go to the cross because that's what you want me to do. What was Jesus doing? He was making peace. Not that he was at odds with God. But he did that for our peace. He sacrificed and he paid the price to bring peace into our lives. So we likewise need to ask ourselves this. Am I more often worried about being right and getting my way and doing what I want? Or am I more concerned with bringing peace into my brothers and sisters in Christ and bringing peace into other people's lives? What's more important? You know, we, we talked in Sunday school about having influence and how we sometimes need to have influence in other people's lives. And sometimes me getting my way will even ruin that influence. So ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. I said that to say this, or all, all these things. Being a peacemaker does not mean that you are a pacifist, it, especially when you're talking about war. That's not the context. The context is between brother and sister in Christ. It's between those that love one another. It's between marriages. It's between me as a minister of the gospel. I need to be someone that brings and presents the peace of God into other people's lives. So is there a time for war? Yeah. But if I can, should I make peace? Yeah. One more thought, and then we're going to be done. This one's really quick, but I think it's important. Ladies and gentlemen, this peace can only come from God. That's it. It can only come from God. And I'm going to show it to you out of Isaiah 57, 20. I'm going to read this verse, give you a real quick overview, and we're done. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Isaiah chapter 57, verse number 20. This, this chapter talks about someone who has the peace of God versus someone who doesn't. I'm just going to read the last two verses of the chapter, 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up the mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. Ladies and gentlemen, very simply put, someone that is living the life of wickedness, God's not going to allow that person to have peace. There's a, there, there's a, a proverb, and it's scriptural, that has kind of evolved a little bit over the years in the way we say it. It's a common saying now. It says, a guilty man runs when nobody's chasing him. And that's, that's true. A guilty man will run when nobody's chasing him. You know why? Because his conscience is eating him alive. He knows that he's done wrong, and he does not have peace in his heart because he knows he has debts yet to be paid. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what God is saying. For a person that has wickedness of heart, they're never going to have peace. And really, the only semblance of peace they might find, oh, well, 
Pastor, what about the person that has no remorse? Uh, the only thing to that is I'd say they've gone so far, they have now seared their conscience with a hot iron so they don't even feel anything anymore. But that's still not peace. That's just them being numb. There's still no peace. So folks, Jesus told us as we're showing the kingdom to others, we need to be peacemakers. Be someone that demonstrates peace, the peace that you have in your heart, in your life. Let your moderation be known to all men. Be careful for nothing. Don't be a worrier. Let people see the peace in you. And then, if you're ever in an opportunity where it's a matter of pride, hey, I'm, I'm having an issue with my brother and sister in Christ. I'm having an issue with my wife, whatever. Be someone that brings peace into their life. Listen, if you eating that steak is going to cause more problems than good, man, don't eat it. It's steak. What's more important? You getting to have that prime rib or somebody getting saved. I mean, that's essentially what it's coming down to. There are sometimes things in our life that, yeah, there's not a right or wrong issue. But if it's going to cause conflict and it's going to ruin my testimony, I don't have to have that. Let's be peace makers. Let's show people our peace, and let's be peacemakers. Folks, let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us with this, because here again, we recognize this is the peace of God. It's not something that I just have on my own. It's peace that God gives me, and I need his help to be able to show it to others around me. Our God in heaven, we want to come to you today, and we want to ask you to help us demonstrate your peace to everyone around us. Lord, these things that you've been teaching us, we, we can't do it on our own. We can't be merciful without your help. We can't be loving without your help. Or left to our own, we'll be full of pride and not humble. And Lord, I pray that today you would help us to be able to not be so full of worry and so full of care. I pray that we would cast all our cares upon you so we can have that peace in our hearts. And then, Lord, likewise, may we live peaceable with all men. I pray that you would help us to demonstrate that with those around us. Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be your time to be able to do business with the Lord. If there is, if there is someone maybe in your heart and your life right now, you know that things aren't peaceable. Is there an opportunity that you have to be able to go and share that peace with them? Can you go and make peace? Why don't you right now, in the quietness of your hearts, ask the Lord to give you that opportunity to make peace. Or hey, maybe even this. Maybe you've been living a life that's full of nothing but worry and care. Whatever it is that's got you worried, man, cast that care on the Lord. Our God in heaven, I pray that you would help us to obey this command that you've given us, to be peaceful. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in our lives that we're not currently living at peace with, I pray that you would show that to us so that we can make and bring peace into their lives. And Lord, when the struggles of life come up, I pray you'd help us likewise to throw those things on you so that we can live and show that moderation to all men. And Lord, may we not live with worry, but that peace that passes all understanding.
So Lord, I ask that you'd bless us now as we get ready to leave. May we work on these things, not just hear them, but may we do them. And God, I likewise ask you bless us now in this next service as well. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening so well this morning. Um, real quick before you go, again, if you are a teacher, a parent, if you want one of these Patch the Pirate handouts that are kind of just talks about scheduling of events and how the whole thing is going to work, come let me know. I'll hand one to you. Uh, and don't forget the Christmas child boxes in the back. So, folks, as always, man, we love you. Always here for you. Uh, give us about 15, 20 minutes, and we'll, we'll be back for our next service. We're dismissed. second class, second Bible study, call it what you will. We'll spend about the next 30, 35 minutes or so here talking specifically today about uh, pastors. Pastors. Um, we could talk about the different positions that have, uh, that, that show up in the Bible and what the differences are between those, but I think specifically what we're going to do is just take some time to key in on the office of a pastor specifically and what the Bible says about that. Um, you know, pastor is not typically something that you find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had priests, you had the high priests, uh, you had men that were called the prophets whom the Lord quite literally spoke through and they delivered the messages of God. Uh, you had people that prophesied, as in they, they shared the good news, though they weren't specifically holding the office of a prophet. There was a distinction there, uh, carrying the mantle, as it were. Uh, the idea of a pastor is something that was fairly new in the New Testament as it comes to um, seeing the church. You, know, you see pastors over the churches. You have these house churches. Pastors were overseeing those things. And then you also start to see over in Revelation when there's many churches that are mentioned there, talking about the church at Ephesus. Every new section with the churches in the Revelation, there's a phrase in there. It's like, hey, unto the angel at the church at Smyrna, unto the angel at the church of Ephesus. The word angel just means messenger. It's actually talking about the main messenger at that church, which would have been the pastor at that place. He's saying, you deliver this message to the people. Anyway, that being said, we're going to go ahead and dive in and talk about specifically the pastor, what his qualifications are, and then what his job description is uh, and how that plays out today. So we'll jump off with a word of prayer. We'll ask the Lord to help us, um, and then we'll, Lord willing, we'll learn something from this. Our God, thank you so much for, again, allowing us to be able to come together. I, I thank you for this church where we can come and learn, where we can spend some time together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I ask that you would help us to understand these scriptures. Uh, maybe, may we apply them correctly. And Lord, above all, may we honor you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's, um, let's start off in the book of Titus, shall we? Let's go to Titus chapter number 1. Titus chapter number 1, and we're going to talk about how a pastor comes to be. How does, how does a man end up being a pastor? And Well, I, I would say that probably um, is a little bit situation dependent, but by and large, you'll see how it's done right here in the book of Titus. Um, 
I also want to say this. If you're reading through the New Testament, a pastor is not an apostle. Those men were different, okay? Uh, specifically to be one of the apostles, the Bible talks about um, that person needing to have seen Christ Jesus with their own eyes. The apostle Paul, he actually reaffirms that. He's like, hey, I have seen Christ with my eyes, which he did on the road to Damascus, and it blinded him, right? That's one of the reasons that he was able to be an apostle. Um, no, no one today meets that qualification. So therefore, we have pastors. We could say technically we even have disciples, right? Jesus had his chosen 12. But outside of the 12, if you followed Jesus, you were one of his disciples. Disciple just means you're a follower, right? So you could technically say we have disciples. But then we have pastors. So here we are in Titus chapter number 1. Uh, let's start reading. Let's go, let's go verse number 4. Uh, Paul is writing this to Titus. So to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. And then he starts going into um, qualifications. But I want to stop here at the first part there. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul did. Paul tells Titus, he's like, Titus, I appointed you as an elder to the ministry in Crete. So it starts off with the Apostle Paul, the, the, which again, remember, Apostle was a special thing. He says, Titus, you're going to be the guy. You stay here in Crete, and you're going to be the one that sets things in order in Crete. All right. Yes, Mr. Apostle Paul, I'll do that. How do I do it? He says, what I want you to do is go into every town, and I want you to ordain elders in every town. And you are going to be the one that, that sets those things in order. Man, so now Titus is like a guy that is going to these towns and helping other churches get started. And he's appointing elders in those churches. So I would say this. When it comes to someone becoming a pastor, I would say it starts first. It starts first with a call from God. And what we, can, we can talk about how that plays out. And really, if you go over to the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter number 3, it says, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. I believe if a person wants to be an elder, or you can even plug pastor into that word, just say church elder, um, it first starts with a desire. That has to be something that he feels that God honestly wants him to do. I don't think a person is going to be told of God to do something and not at least have some kind of desire. Well, you know, I might actually be wrong about that because Jonah was told to do something. He said, no, I don't want to do it. And he went and ran away. But even so, he still knew what he was supposed to do. I think the way that God does that today is he puts that desire in people's heart, even though it's not necessarily verbal. He shows them and reveals to them, this is my plan for your life. And then he starts opening those doors. Now, that also being said, uh, there's a few things that have to be put in place. I think for a person to be considered an elder, to be considered for a pastor, first and foremost, that has to be recognized by other men of God, if possible. Let me, no, let me put those into place. That person has to be recognized by other men of God, if possible. So how did Titus get started? The Apostle Paul says, hey, you're the guy. 
and I want you to go there. And then he says further, all right, Titus, just like I did for you, I want you to go into these other towns and you find elders and you ordain them and you see if that person fits the bill as being an elder for the Lord. I, I will tell you how that happened with me. Um, first and foremost, I felt the Lord. Now, let's say feel. Don't think it's anything spooky or weird, but I just knew in my heart that if I did anything other than giving my life to some form of ministry, I would have been disobeying God. I just knew that. I can't tell you how I knew it, but I knew that. Um, it, it, was, it was this, this is going to sound weird, but I don't know how else to put it. It is almost like this weird haunting feeling that will not let you go. Every time I tried to find some other path with my life, it's like in the back of my mind, the Lord just said, hey, that's not what I told you to do. And he wouldn't give me peace doing anything else. And when I surrendered to it, I said, all right, Lord, I will go to the ministry. Remember the peace of God? There it was. I'm like, all right, that's, that must be what you want me to do. So I went and I studied and I trained. And then after my, my training was finished, there was, I went through a process that now people have do in an organized fashion what happened here. Titus or, uh, ordained other elders. I went before what was called an ordination council. And you talk about what, what guys call a hot seat because it's pretty intimidating. Uh, I was called into a church office and I sat at the head of a board table, like a board meeting type thing. And now again, it doesn't always work this way. I'll talk about the other ways. But I sat at this board meeting table and I was surrounded by, I think it was eight if I remember properly, between eight and ten other current pastors. And for about, I can't remember how long, it was a long time, uh, they drilled me doctrinally. Hey, what do you, what do you think about this? What, what, what can you show me for these scriptures? What can you do here? What, you know, what does the Bible say about this? And I have my Bible. And, and we talked, and we had doctrinal discussions, and we, um, we went through the, the crux of God's word. And at the end of it all, uh, they said, all right, Trevor, you, you can walk out of the room. <laughs> so talk about being stressed. I walked out of the room and I shut the door. And then here were all these men that I literally had grown up under. Some of them were my friend's parents. Um, they were men of God. And they, they, talked about, they talked about my answers. They talked about my doctrine. They talked about my life and uh, my reputation, all those things. And they come to the conclusion, are we going to ordain this man as a minister of God, yes or no? Which is what Titus did. Titus was told, Titus, you go find men that you find worthy of ordaining to be elders. Um, and this is not a prideful thing. It's just what the Lord's done in my life. Um, so they, they, chose, they chose to ordain me, and I, they went through a service. They gave me a, a special Bible as kind of a, a congratulatory thing. I've still got that. It's back on the bookshelf. And they gave me a certificate. They all signed it, and they said, hey, we, we ordained this guy to the ministry. We recognize that he is someone that is worthy of being an elder. So, and that, that's something that, that I, I feel like to be a great honor and a great privilege. But that's what was happening here. You see it in verse number 5. For this cause, the Apostle Paul says, I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. And now he's saying, you ordained elders in every city as I had appointed thee. All right, Titus, now it's your job to go find other men and you appoint them as elders there. So I think first and foremost, a pastor is someone that is recognized as being a pastor by other men of God. 
The only other way around that that I would say that that wouldn't fit, let's say worst case scenario, you've got, I'm going to go really super extreme here. Let's say some deep, dark tribe down in Peru somewhere, they happen to find a Bible. And man, these people start reading it and they get together and they decide, man, we want to, we want to follow Jesus. And you've got people that are starting to get saved. And then through the course of that, you have someone that God just really begins to bless with an understanding of the scripture. And he begins leading other people in the truths that are found in that. Could that person eventually end up being a pastor? Yeah. I mean, I, I could see that. That's why I'm saying extreme circumstances. But that's extreme. This is typically how these things work. Someone perpetuates that. So he is, he is ordained of other men. Um, he is not hired by a congregation, but he is, he is recognized. Um, you know, he's, he, serves, he serves God, if that makes sense. Okay, let's go ahead and look at the next one. Let's talk about these qualifications. So first, he is recognized by other men, and then he also meets the requirements. So the Apostle Paul says, all right, Timothy, if you're going to appoint men, this is what the kind of men they've got to be. Verse number six, if any be blameless... The husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless, the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. See, he's also a taught man. That he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain, and, uh, vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. So he's talking about the Pharisees at that point, too. Anyway, now he's talking about the kind of person this is. Timothy, if you, or Titus, if you're going to ordain men... This is the kind of person that he has to be. And it talks about his personal life. It talks about his attitude, the demeanor that he has. And he has to be able to meet these. So um, you can look at three general categories. The, they first look at his family life. A bishop must be blameless, a steward of, um, excuse me, verse number six. The husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Okay, blameless, the husband of one wife, uh, not accused, or... Children not accused of right or unruly. So I'm going to go into this. Um, first, I believe, and this, I'm, can I go ahead and give you this? This is going to be an unpopular opinion. It, it just is. But this is, this is what I see in the scripture. And, and, I, and I feel like if I don't talk about it, I am not being true to my calling. So, and, and, it's, and, and as unfortunate as this may sound, I see no, no other conclusion in Scripture. The Bible says a person has to be the husband of one wife. Now, I've already talked about this. I don't even have to go there. Uh, you folks know where I stand on, on men and women being pastors. I believe God ordains men. And he even says, um, anyway, we'll, we'll not go back into that. I absolutely believe that God calls men. He's always used men. That has been the standard of his, uh, of his qualifications. However, he also goes into their family life. He's like, these men, they also have to be the husband of one wife. I believe that means you can only have one living wife. 
let me explain. Uh, folks, if you would, go with me over to the book of Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Please, and please don't think me unkind with what I'm, what I'm about to, to show you. I am simply showing you the scripture and trying to apply it as it's read. Matthew chapter 19. Um, let's start in verse number 8. Matthew 19, verse number 8. He saith unto them, now this is Jesus talking. Um, these people are asking him questions about marriage and such. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, that this goes into marriage and what it means to be married and divorced and to get married again. The, the main thing I'm focusing in here on is this. If a person puts away his wife, we're not talking about the cause and why it happened, but if that does happen and he marries another or he marries her that is put away, the Bible says that is singularly one time an act of adultery. Now, I go back over here to the book of Titus and it says he has to be the husband of one wife. One, what is the definition of adultery? It is when a person outside the bounds of marriage, or excuse me, has extramarital intimate activities. So when I look at those two and I compare those, it is my understanding of scripture that if a man divorces his wife, gets married to another lady, he is now unqualified to preach in the pulpit. Excuse me, he is now unqualified to pastor. I believe he can still he can still spread the message of God. And anyone can spread the message of God. That's, that's a wonderful thing. He should. But scripturally, I find that person unqualified to pastor. He must be the husband, one wife. Now, the Bible does say, no, notice I said living wife. The Bible does say that when a spouse dies, that's why even when you say your marriage vows till death do us part. Okay. When that person has now passed on, there is now no longer marriage bond. I believe that person can get married again, and he is still within the bounds of that because the Bible doesn't call that adultery. It says when you divorce and get remarried, it says that's a singular act of adultery. So I believe a person that has multiple wives that are still living, that person would be un unqualified. So he must be the husband of one wife. Now let's go back to Titus. It also says that he must be blameless, verse number 6. This is still in his family life. I know another man. <laughs> I say one. I know several. And this is terrible. I, I hate that this is true, but it is. I know another man. Um, he was in the ministry for a long time. He was a pastor for a long time. And during his time as a pastor, he cheated on his wife. And it was, it was kind of hidden for a little while. Eventually, it came out. People found out about it. Um, and... As, as it should, it caused a lot of problems. I mean, his, his children were hurt. Um, they, couldn't even, they couldn't even look the daddy in the eye anymore. Um, his wife, obviously brokenhearted. And I look at that, and I say, okay, did they get, 
Did, did they stay together? Yeah. Did maybe he get forgiveness? Yeah. Is he now, here's the word, is he now blameless? I don't think so. N notice, the word's not sinless, okay? Everyone sins. But the question is, when I see that word blameless, is there some kind of a black mark on that person's life that from that moment on, people will be hindered from hearing his message? That's what I think of when I hear blameless. That's the very first word. Look at verse 6 again. If any be blameless, comma, it's still the same thought, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of right or ruling. That's not about your family life. Is there something in your life that people can point at and say, yeah, you're preaching the gospel, but... Yeah, this is what you say. This is what you're preaching, but... You know, they might have the right message, but people will never hear it because of the blame that is upon his life. So, I would say that person, sure, can spread the message of Jesus Christ, but he is not blameless. Again, not sinless, blameless. And that's, that's a pretty high mark sometimes. So, brother, did I, did I see you, a hand, or did you have a thought there? Think about blameless. That is a very good question. I am going to tell you a real life story. Um, for the sake of the recording and podcast, I'm not going to use any names. There is a family that I know very well. Um, some 20 years ago, there was a man before he came to Christ and before he was saved. He was... Uh, I want to say charged and convicted. Judicially, I'm not sure what happened. But practically, he, he was a pedophile. And it was, it was known. Um, like I said, I can't remember if he served time or if he was um, convicted, charged. I, I don't know. Man found Christ, got saved, legitimately. Um, and that's when they moved to our church, the church I used to be a part of. Uh, and by the way, that's just before I moved here. No problems with that church there whatsoever. Um, this man and his wife, they became staff members of the church. She was a teacher, kindergarten teacher, and man, loved kids. This is just some, one of the sweetest ladies you will ever meet. And he was a janitor. And so, man, he, he was always at the church. He was cleaning, and he... And legitimately loved doing the work of God, loved being around the church and the things of church. So while they were putting this, these, this couple through their, um, through their checks and you know, questioning them on stuff before they were going to be on staff, um, one of the questions was, is there anything that would prevent this person being around, around children, working with children, yada, yada. And the husband and wife wanting that to be in the past and knowing that they are new creatures in Christ, um, it, was, it was said, no, there's nothing there. Fast forward about 15 years. Um, the man preyed upon another child. Was he forgiven? Yeah. Was he a new creature? Yeah. But I think sometimes, this, this is the best way for me to answer that. 
Sins can heal, but they leave scars. They just do. You know, if, if you, you got a guy, maybe in his past, 20 years ago, he was involved in some kind of a sin, and maybe even the same thing. Let's say he was a sexual predator, and then we find out about it. But man, since then, he's gotten saved. God can forgive him, and as awful as that is, God died for that sin too. Can we love him? Yeah. Can we minister to him? Yeah. Is he going to be my Sunday school teacher? No. See what I mean? Uh, it's, it's one of those things where, yes, there is forgiveness, but sin still leaves scars. And that's, um, that's the unfortunate part about sin. You know? Uh, and you think about even the sin with David. Uh, <laughs> do you remember when David, David committed sin with Bathsheba? Nathan came to him. And... Nathan said, hey, let me tell you a story. He says, there was this guy that had a neighbor that come to his house, and he was, uh, you know, he wanted to cook a big supper for him. And instead of, he had hundreds of sheep, and instead of killing his sheep, he went next door and stole that poor man's one and only sheep. And he cooked that thing up, and, and he served that one to his neighbor. What are you going to do with that guy, David? David says, oh, he's going to pay that back fourfold. Nathan said, thou art the man. Now, did God forgive? God forgive David? Yeah, David still had to pay the price four times over. And then you see his country end up being torn apart, and you see discord in his family and even some of his own children dying because of it. So you can, you can have forgiveness, but that doesn't automatically remove the consequences and the scars that come with it, um, which is a terrible part about sin. sin that's, that's just what sin does. It wrecks things. It ruins things. And it always has. And then we, we, we toy around with it and act like it's not that big a deal. But, man, it does. It just destroys stuff. So, yeah, so, so back to this, this idea of being, being blameless. Yes, there can be forgiveness. And, yes, things can be made whole again. Um, but the unfortunate part about being human is that we are unable to supernaturally forget the way God does. Yeah, that's one of the things that's amazing about God. He forgives, and then he chooses to forget well, maybe one day we'll forget when we get to heaven. But, but for now, we still have to deal with the sin nature. So um, anyway, let, let's look at the next one. So he has to be blameless. Okay, nothing can be pointed at him. The husband of one wife. And then he has to have faithful children. Why? This, this is kind of a tough one, but I think there's something in here that we need to draw out of it. The way a husband and the way a father conducts his home is a reflection of who he is as a person. Yes, children have free will. So I would also qualify that with this. It's the children that are currently living in his home who he still has authority over. Um, once children are grown and they're out doing their own thing, well, man, at that point, they're making their own choices. The, the father is no longer responsible for the things that they are doing. However, it's like we always say, if you're in my house, you're going to live by my rules, right? That's kind of what this is getting back into. How is a father conducting his home? If you go back to the Old Testament, there was a priest. He had two kids. I mean, his kids were making a mock, just an absolute mockery of the house of God. They were bringing, I, I might be wrong about this, but I know they were doing improper things with the sacrifices and possibly even bringing prostitution into the house of God. I have to go back and study that. But I know they were bringing wickedness and sin into the house of God. And the priest, he ended up um, having a lot of problems because of it. Anyway, so that's another thing. He needs to be looked at his children. 
So his family life, to be qualified, we have to look at his family life. Let's look at number two. You also have to look at his moral character. Who is he as a person? Verse number seven, for a bishop must be blameless, there's that word again, the steward of God, not self-willed. All right. Who's he serving? Is he serving himself or is he serving God? I think there are a lot of people, at least today anyway, they, they use Christianity as a platform for publicity, which is unfortunate. You know, a, a true servant of God, he is going to preach even the things that are uncomfortable that people will call him out on. But if they're scriptural, they're scriptural. So he's the, the steward of God, not self-willed. What about this one? Not soon to angry. Hey, he doesn't have a temper, man. He doesn't fly off the handle. Not given to wine, so he's not a drunkard. No striker. He's not a fighter. He's not given to filthy lucre, as in he's not driven by money and the lucre of this world. These are all things of a moral character. So is this person morally someone that ought to be a pastor? Those are qualifications. Uh, now what about letter C? I'll give you this one. We'll look at his outward actions real quick. His outward actions. Um, he is a lover of hospitality. Man, if he can, he will do whatever he can to help people. Now, I realize there's wisdom in those things, but he's someone that loves helping people. He's hospitable. Um, a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men. He also loves surrounding himself by good men. He's sober in his thinking. He's just Hey, God's just. Folks, there's nothing wrong with wanting justice to be served on sin. Oh, someone does something wrong, justice says that that will be paid for. That, that's a good thing. That's a godly quality. Holy. So he's set apart. He's temperate. He's able to control himself. These are biblical things. So, man of God, what three things the Bible saying you look at to see if he's qualified? First, well, this isn't even qualification, but he's going to be recognized by other men. He's going to be ordained, put into place by other men. We said, number one, you're going to look at his family. What's, what's going on with his family? Is he husband to one wife? Is he blameless? Is he ruling his house as, as a good leader in his home? Then you're going to look at his moral character. Then you're going to look at his outward character. Is he someone that fits the bill to be a leader, to be a under-shepherd? That's the word of God's people. We're going to look at this last verse, and we'll be done. Uh, let's go to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. Uh, 1 Peter 5, let's start reading. Yeah, let's read verse 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. The elders which are among you I exhort. All right. So the Apostle Peter is now talking to the elders again. Who am also an elder, which, by the way, Peter did become a pastor. Who am also an elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Here's his admonishment. Feed the flock of God which is among you. All right, I'm going to pause there. What's the first job of a pastor? Feed God's flock. Feed God's flock. Look, folks, the, the idea is this. We as children of God are all God's flock. 
the pastor, a lot of people say he's a shepherd, but truly he is the under-shepherd. I answer to God, and I take care of God's people, and I'm supposed to feed them. How do I feed them? The Word of God. Folks, this is what we need. That, that's the whole point of this. This is the... <laughs> This is a weird illustration. But this is the grazing ground for God's flock. This is where we come and we partake of a meal of God's word. That's what we do. We talk about God's word, and that's what we're supposed to eat of. So we're going to feed that. So it's his job to take the word of God and to share it with those people. So he says, feed the flock. Then next he says this, taking the oversight thereof. All right. Folks, it's not the job of a pastor to be a dictator, but... The pastor of a church is responsible for what happens within that church. God holds him accountable. It's almost like an administrative type thing, taking the oversight, seeing where things are going, how are things happening, where are things going. Ladies and gentlemen, when, when I die and when I get to heaven, I have to answer to God for the things that happen within these four walls. That's, that is a... I don't want to say it's a privilege, and in a sense it is. I'm privileged to be able to serve God, but it is also a responsibility. It is a, a weighty responsibility, knowing that one day I'm going to answer to God for it. And that's something I have to consider. So taking the oversight, taking the oversight, and that's not by force, that's not by power, that's not by being a dictator, but it is by administering those things. So he feeds the flock which is among you. Take the oversight thereof, not by constraint, there it is, but willingly. And how about this one? Not for filthy lucre. You don't do it for money, don't do it for fame, don't do it for the power of notoriety, but have a ready mind. Do it for the right reasons. Neither being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, see, that's God, he's the main shepherd. When the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So what's his job? Remember that it's God's flock. It's not his. Any pastor needs to remember that the people in that church, they don't belong to him. They belong to God. And that's, it's, it's weird me talking about it, being in that spot. But, but, but while we talk about as a church, yes, the position of a pastor is me to care for you and to love you and to do what's best for you, but I answer in doing so to God, just like we all one day answer to God. So I'm, I'm here just to be a servant. I serve you, I serve him, and one day I got to answer to him for how it's all done. Um, just like we all answer to him for our different things that he's called us to do. So anyway, job of a pastor. Man, it's, it's different. It's different. You can be a preacher, doesn't mean you're a pastor, but God puts specific qualifications on a pastor. He has to be a certain type of person, a certain character, and he has a specific job. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the, absolutely. Pastor is a modern term. So bishop, same thing. Elder, same thing. Um, yeah, and, and the word pastor is actually in the Bible. Um, I'll find it real quick. Cause I've, man, I've got Google. I love having Google. <laughs> uh, he talks about the, where he gave gifts to the church. Ephesians 4.11. There it is. I'm going to read it. Uh, 15 Galatians. Ephesians. 
This is, this is talking about the ministry gifts, the different positions that God ordained in the New Testament. Uh, verse number 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So those are the different positions that God has ordained. And, you know, that, that they're being ordained. Mm-hmm. Yep. So typically, um, elders, elders, the way they would have looked at it in that day, is the person that is considered the, um, not necessarily elder in age, because Paul also told Timothy, hey, let no man despise thy youth, but be an example of the believer. Someone elder in the sense of he is the, and, and it, I don't like saying it because it feels prideful being the person in that spot, but a person that is going to be the example of what a person of God should be. He is the person that is educated, and he is discerned, and he has been taught in the things of God. Um, and now there are, has been times, too, in the scriptures where it talks about getting the elders, plural, of a church. And that's talking about getting the, the men of the church that know things about God and can work together on it. Yes, sir. I would say a deacon qualifies as being an elder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and someone that, in my mind, the word elder is more of an umbrella term. Does that make sense? A, a deacon is someone that certainly can fill that role because they were appointed by the people and they were told to be someone that is also fits those qualifications. They've got qualifications in there. Um, so the people that are able to be examples within the church. So. Yes, ma'am. Can you visit, I think, Calvin's question about being appointed blameless? Sure, yeah. Um, all are sin. It's all sin. Absolutely. Yeah, none is sinless. And, and right. And, and, you know, we've repented, we can get Absolutely. So, where is the cutoff? Where's the Good question. Good question. Yeah. Because any sin's enough to condemn someone. I would say a person is no longer blameless when whatever sin that they are involved in has become a hindrance to their ministry. You know what I mean? So let's say, let's say it comes out that the whole town knows that this pastor has been embezzling money from the church and he's cost his church $15,000. Know, can he be forgiven of that? Yeah. But is his trust now broken? See, to, to me, that's, that's the line. When you have broken your trust, when, you, when, when there's now always going to be that one specific thing that people can't trust you anymore with that position. Um, so I think any number of sins could fall into that category. You know, blame really comes more upon the memory of other people looking at that guy. So, yeah, I, I think it's hard to say... Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, the, the sure, yeah, because that's, and again, that's not pa- the pastor part. Yeah, so he can still serve God. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is specifically pastor. You know, the, um, people can serve God in so many ways, you know, beyond just, just being a pastor. You know, this, this is just that specific position. Mm-hmm, yeah. Pastors and deacons are the two spots that God gives specific qualifications for. Yeah. And then apostles, but we don't have those today. Yeah. The description of the unit in my mind is, is what the world's calling gay. I was on a church council at the Lutheran Church. We had mm-hmm. to decide whether 
gain pastors in that church. As I sat there and read the vision, I thought, I have no business being on the church council if my past fails. And I said to him, I said, I can't, don't even think I can vote on this, because according to the Bible, I'm not good enough to be a church council or an elder for the church or whatever you call it. But as I read now, a unit that absolutely devotes their life, a gay mm-hmm. unit that absolutely devotes their life to it, and I'm faced big with it because I have a son who's gay, and I think he was born to serve every second of his life to glorify mm-hmm. Jesus. As soon as he starts telling everybody the rainbow is his and starts shoving his lifestyle, I can do whatever I want, and Jesus will forgive me, then him and I are at odds. But it's such a turmoil, and being somebody that was a mean old, uh, a pushy old uh, conservative is what they call it, I guess, one that made fun of gay people and the curse that comes back. I made fun of that kid when I was small and bullied him. Anyway, the curse that comes back. But then you get to this point where I am now 67 years old. I'm not fit to be a leader of anything. And I tell people that and they say, well, neither am I. So why do you get your child church council? That is the thing. No, nobody's perfect. And, and real quick, I just, I just want to qualify that. Um, it is my understanding of a eunuch. It is a male, not homosexual, but a male that has been neutered. And here's... And certain females were born with post-sex organs. In the United States, the parents can have a surgical procedure and make mm-hmm. that decision. Sure. I was sitting in karaoke with a lady from Brazil. It was very, very pretty girl, boy. She looked like a, a lady. I told her she had a beautiful voice. She came on under my message. She said, did you see I'm a she-male and you're a Christian? You're not going to talk to me. Mm. I said, you live in Brazil. Don't think there's a medical yeah. opportunity. And, so, and those, those things are certainly anomalies. But it, uh, they said, the evidence says it's up to one half percent of the population, mm. which is a lot, a lot of people. The, um, I guess back to the term eunuch in the scripture, we talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. That guy, he was a male that served in the court of a gal that was known as a Candace. She was someone that was the treasurer for a female ruler, more or less like a queen at that day. And due to male hormonal issues, any male that served in those courts, they had to be neutered first, which is, which is kind of what that was. So just speaking strictly to the homosexual issue in the scriptures, I, don't, I haven't seen those two being equated before. The big so. thing is, is homosexuality is a choice. Being born gay is not. You can you can certainly be tempted with any sin. It's when it's but when you act born, on it. If you're born loaded with female hormones or, or not with male hormones and you're not manly man, that's not your choice. But how you live your life is. Sure. Some of us are born that we love women. Mm-hmm. And we love lots of women and our favorite people are women. But mm-hmm. it's wrong for us to have more than one wife. Yeah. And, you know, even, even to that, too, I would say just because you are tempted with a sin does not make you that. I can be tempted to lie. I'm not a liar until I lie. You know, if you, if, I can be tempted to murder, but I'm not a murderer until I murder. If you mostly do that, but then all of a sudden you fall to it, now you've done it. Redeemed. Yeah, yeah. And, boy, I'm glad any sin can be forgiven. Probably can you never know. be redeemed in your own mind. That's the hard part. People tell me, Jesus forgives you, God forgives yourself. But there's some things we don't forgive ourselves. Yeah. That's where, boy, Jesus is the only one that can cleanse us, too, you know. 
within ourselves. So, well, folks, let's pray. We're a little bit over our time, and then we'll we'll be dismissed. Certainly going to stick around for a little while if you're willing to. If you want to come and chat some more, man, let's do it. But as far as the service goes, we're out of time. Uh, and don't forget, we'll have the uh, nursery, of, I guess our kids' class available too right after this. They can go hang out and have a good time too. So let's bow for prayer. Our Lord, thank you for, again, being so very good to us. Um, Lord, I'm glad that you have appointed men of God in my own life that have been lighthouses and examples unto me. And Lord, I pray that you would just help us here as a church. Um, Lord, to find as many ways as we possibly can to be able to minister to one another. I thank you for the position of pastors that you would put. And Lord, I thank you that you would allow me to serve you in a position such as this. God, I ask that you would just help me to do so in such a way that would be pleasing unto you. I pray, Alan, also that you'd bless us as we leave. Uh, help us to understand this idea of being peaceable and living at peace with all men as best as we can so that we can share the peace of God. May we be peacemakers. We love you, Lord. And we honor you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.